want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 15. Gospel of John chapter 15. We're continuing in our study on uh, this portion of the Gospel of John 15 through chapter 18. You know, many of us tend to uh, end up in spiritual ruts from time to time. Uh, we travel paths that are familiar, and sometimes we sense a lack of joy and productivity. Sometimes you may be tempted to ask, is this the joyful, abundant life that Christ intended for me? Because sometimes, if we're being honest, it doesn't feel that way. Uh, sometimes we languish, sometimes we struggle uh, with achieving the life that Christ has called us to. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what does God do to make that abundant, joyful, productive life possible? The text that we're looking at comes at the end of chapter 14, which is an extended discussion from Christ on the fact that he will be with his disciples and they, they will never experience being alone. Verse 31 of chapter 14 ends by saying, come, let us go. So it comes at a time when Christ is moving into the more difficult portion of his public ministry. From this point on, the, the next geographical connection you're going to see is him crossing the Kidron Valley and moving into the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously, this text then falls on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, his final sacrifice. All of this discussion for the disciples is exceedingly troublesome. What they fear is his departing. And so they begin to languish in fear. And Christ begins to speak to them the words of a Savior about to die, leaving with his disciple a message. And the assumption I think that we can make this morning is that the words of Jesus in this setting are crucial for them and also crucial for us. What I would like you to do this morning is to come into the place where Jesus talks with his disciples, probably in a vineyard along the way from the upper room, moving towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Lean in closely and listen. Because the words of Christ in this context are meant to be clear. He does not use a parable to illustrate the truth. Here he uses a metaphor, which simply is an illustration. Something from common life that they could grasp, understand, and see the implications of for their spiritual life. And so he has a discussion about the vineyard. Simple, extended metaphor with powerful observations. Okay, the focus of this text will be this, the nature of the relationship between Jesus and believers. Okay, so the, what is that relationship like? What are the dynamics that cause it to work? And how does it ultimately influence my daily life? I want to read verses 1 and following in chapter 15. Jesus' words as they move from the upper room towards the Garden of Gethsemane. The amount of time here we don't know but we know that we have about 17 verses directed towards this topic. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. 
No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. And by this, show yourselves to be my disciples. I want to point to four key elements of the illustration first, okay? One is Jesus is the true vine or source of life. Secondly, the Father takes an intimate interest in the protection and care of that vine. Believers in the illustration are branches where fruit is produced. Fruit is the outcome at differing levels from the life of believers that trust in God. Okay, so that's the, that's the analogy from the vineyard. There's a vine, there's a gardener, there are branches, and there are, is fruit. That's the simplicity of the illustration. Probably the thing that changes in this uh, illustration or metaphor is the nature of the branch itself and the nature of the level of productivity. Those two things seem to be focal points of the discussion. The rest is rather clear. There is a main trunk, there are branches, there's someone who tends to the branches, and fruit is harvested at the time of harvest. So as you look through this text then, I think what you'll find is that there are three words that we can trace through the text. The first word is the root word pruning. Okay, this is a a common feature of the text. This uh, pruning, if you will, relates to two kinds of of branches, okay? And as as I read through the text, hopefully you picked up on the fact that there were branches that didn't bear fruit and there were branches that bore various levels of fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit, abounding fruit, okay? So you have two types of branches that are spoken to here. And I want to address, first of all, the pruning of the non-fruit-bearing branch, those with no fruit that remains. And the text is somewhat sobering in verse 2. It says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And I, I think this text contains a warning of sorts. If you've studied through the Gospel of John, you know that on a couple of occasions, there is, there is speaking from Jesus about people that hover close to the inner circle of disciples who acknowledge intellectually Christ but don't abide in and trust in Christ. John chapter 2. Jesus knew that they believed in him, but he wasn't entrusting himself to them. John chapter 6, the story of the bread of life that Jesus gives. And it says, from that point, many of his disciples followed him no more. When you come to this text, you find a category of people that seem to be in proximity to Christ, but have no evidence of life. Okay, so that's a theme that tends to work through this text. And in relationship to those branches, uh, there is a warning. There's a warning about a life that feels like it's part of the vine, but has no evidence of such a connection. Okay, those branches, we are told, he 
takes away. Now, here's the way that I think I would understand this from this broader picture in in the Gospel of John and also from Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, you find this statement. Those that endure to the end will be saved. So here's the idea. Those that abide in Christ in a fruitful way to the end, in a flourishing way, are designated or understood to be believers. There are some that are in the close inner circle that haven't believed but appear to be branches but really aren't. And those are the ones that are being pruned away. If you remember in context, chapter 13, the story of Judas, who presumably heard the teaching of Christ, who presumably went out and taught the words of Christ, but had no relationship with Christ. Does that ring a bell? Okay, and I think that's the nature of the text here. The disciples that abide are disciples that have come to faith in Christ and evidenced that relationship in fruitfulness. Judas evidenced in the long term a lack of faith and trust in Christ, just as those in John 6, just as those in John 2. So there is this pruning of a category of those who believe intellectually but seem in this context to be unconverted and following him no more. Lack of fruit equals lack of life. But there is also this idea of pruning of fruit-bearing branches. Look at the second part of verse 2. It says, while every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, this word pruning then, let me just uh, address this. Number one, pruning is necessary. Okay, if you know anything about vines and branches, I have a grapevine growing behind my house. It's a mess. Okay, this thing can shoot out uh, branches 15, 20 feet long in a season. I'm not a good vine dresser. Uh, And the result is that the, uh, the crop that comes off of that vine is not edible. Okay, because it tends to be diseased, it tends to be uh, covered with leaves, and, and it's just, it's a bit of a mess. In the analogy, pruning is the means to productivity. What, what vines tend to do, grapevines tend to do, is overproduce foliage. That foliage needs to be trimmed away so that air can move through and keep the grapes dry so they don't get diseased, and it also allows the sun to shine in to final the ripening of the grapes. So the job of the tenderer is to take a branch that is producing and make it more productive. Thus, this pruning that is necessary becomes a vital part of our relationship with God. When I was a young person, I remember watching my dad prune maple trees in our yard. It was, for me as a young person with a kind of a a small view of things, with a small trajectory, it was horrifying. I'd watch my dad trim maple trees and think, he hates them. He doesn't like shade trees, right? Because the way he would hack branches from it, I kind of came away saying, like, Dad, I don't know. He's like, hey, just carry the branches into the woods. I carry them into the woods. Years later, I saw the benefit of what he was doing. Those trees that would have been clogged and twisted and constrained by themselves were flourishing because of the saw that my dad applied to them. That pruning that is necessary for productivity is what the Bible is talking about here in our lives. We have a tendency to gain too much foliage, to love foliage, and not bear fruit. And so the work of God is intended, though it is painful, it is also essential. 
We as believers should expect pruning along the way. If you study the life of Peter in the Gospel of John, you'll see a classic example of a man who experienced the pruning hand of the work of God in his life. The end result is, when you come to Acts chapter 2, he is a, an incredibly productive disciple of Jesus. Because the pruning hand of God is at work in his life. The aim of a vineyard is not to produce foliage. It is to produce grapes. And God will work in ways that at times may be painful to bring about the goodness of fruit that brings joy in your life. And my challenge to you this morning would be this. Don't don't resent the shears of God. Don't resent the work that he's doing in your life to take away the things in your life that tend to hinder. I ask you this question. What pruning are you undergoing today? What is God seeking to cut away from your life so that you may become more effective in producing fruit for his glory? And I want you to remember this from Hebrews 12 and verse 6. Don't take lightly the discipline or pruning of the Lord. For those that he loves, he disciplines for their good. And God at times will move into our lives in a way that feels painful. But in the long view of things in our lives, many times we as Christians, in the midst of the pruning, don't understand it. But later we have the perspective and the capacity to look back and say, okay, God, I see what you were doing. And because of the fruitfulness that emerges, there is a gratitude and a joy towards God that says, God, that pruning was painful, but I understand that it was necessary. You know, every good surgeon knows that to heal someone, you must first be willing to wound them. And I believe that God is a gracious surgeon, a vine dresser, who moves into the context of our life to take away the things that we cherish because they make us look good, leaves, so that we may, for his glory, bear fruit that remains and that sustains. And often we make that trade, don't we? We love the appearance of things, God isn't interested in the appearance of things. God is interested in the substance of things in your life. And so he will move in. He will wield the shears so that a harvest of productivity will emerge in your life. Don't resent the pruning. It works contrary to common sense, but it leads to greater potential and greater glory for God. So that's pruning. The other word that emerges in this text in six verses 10 times is the word abide or remain. Depends on the translation that you have. The words mean the same thing. It means to have a vital connection. So if I see a word recurring 10 times in six verses, here's what I have in my notes in bold letters, emphasis. Okay, this task, this call to remain is vitally important for believers who have seen as branches attached vitally to Christ. This relationship to, this abiding, this connection with Christ is vital to success in our Christian experience. And it is vital to finding the joy that we often find so elusive. So verses four and five, he says, remain in me as I also remain in you. And I I just, I love this reciprocating blessing of Christ. He said to his disciples in chapter 14, I'm never going to leave you. I will abide with you, but I abide with a, with a purpose. I want you to buy into that relationship, to orient yourself towards that relationship in an intimate and deep way. 
So remain in me as I remain in you. Why? Because no branch, this is a key lesson, no branch can bear fruit by itself. We have a tendency to run off and say, I do this. Okay, you hear a little kid say that, I do it. Okay, it's a declaration of independence that leads to a lack of success typically. Okay, this text is saying something very powerful. Okay, abide in me and I will remain in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In that, I believe Christ is is issuing a warning and a promise. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Remaining, abiding in Christ, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Abiding in Christ leads to great benefit. It means this. Nothing of consequence in your life will emerge apart from your relationship with Jesus. So that relationship is vital and crucial. And I encourage you this morning to think about what in your life is hindering that relationship with Christ. Because that relationship, when understood and honored, that word spoken to make you clean, to make you productive, when that word is honored, beautiful things will begin to happen in your life. One of the things I've learned in the process of our church construction project is that Tim Hoff has a reasonable grasp of residential construction. Tim Hoff has no clue about commercial construction. Okay? Tim Matthews, on the other hand, gets it. Here's what I've learned. If I listen to Tim Matthews at the building, I look like I know what I'm doing. When I say, okay, that's what he said, go do that. Dave will say, yep, he knows. Uh, sometimes we'll say, uh, I, how do we say that? Tim Matthews has forgotten more than I'll ever know. Something like that. It's like every face, he's like, he knows. And I've learned something through that. It's good to have competent people around you, capable people around you, because you look better <laughs> in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm. Okay, and I, okay, my temptation is I want to look good, okay, at what I'm doing. I want to appear competent. I often appear spiritually incompetent because of my lack of trust in Christ. The aim of Christ is not to make you look good. It is to make you fruitful. And when you draw near and you listen to the word that makes you clean, beautiful things will begin to emerge. You will begin to do things that you could never do on your own. It's why Jesus drives this nail home. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse, verse, the second half of verse 4, he says, it must remain in the vine. You can't bear fruit unless you remain in me. That elusive joy that I want in a productive life can only be found as I draw near to and listen to and abide in Christ. And then amazing things will begin to happen as we realize that it's not about me. It's not about what I know, it's about what he knows. And when I put what he knows into practice, as the Spirit brings it to mind, as we saw last week, amazing things will begin to happen. And that elusive, abundant, prosperous, joyful life spiritually will begin to emerge. And the branch that looks weak, he will prune so that it will begin to flourish and bring forth for his glory more and more fruit. The second lesson from the vineyard is this. A vital connection to the vine is essential to fruitfulness. I think that is a stunning invitation into intimacy and productivity and purpose in Christ. That should honor us 
and that should humble us. He invites us to a productive life as we listen to him and follow his directives. That is how we abide. It's critical that we discern in our lives and that we also identify deterrence to abiding. Personal observation. Tim Hoff is often too, T-O-O, busy to truly abide. I think I could say it this way. I have a uh, freakishly active mind. I wake up at night and my mind just starts to uncontrollably roll. Not worry, just things that I've got to do, remember about this, about that. And they're written down. So don't come up to me after the service. Yeah, if you write it down, that won't happen. Yes, it does. <laughs> I promise you it does. What that tends to hinder is abiding. So that's the fight. You want to pray for me? Pray that I will have time to abide and to listen and to rest and to be truly productive and joyful. Because that scattered busyness does not lead to joy, at least anxiety and a lack of effectiveness. May God help us to honestly identify the things that distract, to honestly identify unjustifiable self-confidence. I do it. No, you don't. No, you don't. Everything that is done for the glory of God in relationship to fruitfulness comes as a result of your attachment to the vine, which is Christ. Anything worthwhile comes from following his instruction and listening to his heart. The last word that I think in this text is so beautiful is in verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, that is, and it's interesting the way he says that, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, it doesn't simply mean to memorize, it means to put into practice. It's not enough to know God's truth. Jesus isn't saying, if you know what I say. That'll be enough. No, if you know what I say and put it into practice, then you'll remain in me because you're staying in proximity to my advice and the advisor. And when the advisor is speaking, good things begin to happen in life. That's why listening to him by the Spirit becomes so crucial. The truths that you know, he speaks into specific circumstances to guide you and direct you. Listen and abide and bear fruit. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, listen to this, that you bear much fruit. And here's the word I want to put in place of that. This is to my Father's glory that you flourish. Read this word in um, Don Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John. He talked about this work of God that takes you from fruit to much fruit to more fruit to flourishing. Flourishing is a beautiful word. I, in the spring, I always love to look at trees as the buds begin to swell up and get ready to flourish. 
there's something about that experience. It's, it's beautiful to watch it also on a tomato plant or on a, on a corn stalk, whatever it might be. It's beautiful to watch that budding presence begin to flourish and something beautiful and glorious begins to come, to come forth for the glory of God. God's aim in your life as a Christian is that you would flourish. A vine's ability to produce growth increases every year. The sad thing is this, vines prefer foliage to fruit. So they need a vine dresser to come in and do what? Trim away the unnecessary things so that the beautiful thing can emerge in great abundance. You know what God wants in your life, Christian? He doesn't want you to bear fruit. He's not satisfied with that. It's not what he designs. It's not what he desires. What he desires is that you bear much fruit that you flourish, that you experience spiritually an abundance, a delight, a joy that attracts the attention of the world around you who's watching into his presence. That is the design, that is the plan, that is the wish of God. My challenge in my life has been this. I think I have a a tendency to settle with surviving rather than thriving. God did not save you so that you could survive this world. He called you and attached you to Christ intimately and vitally so that you would thrive in this world. Because a surviving life does not capture the attention of a needy world. But a thriving life, a vigorous Christian life, causes people to say, what do you know that I don't know? Who do you know that I don't know? And that is our opportunity to say, you know what? I'm attached to Christ. And anything good you see emerging in my life flows out of that relationship. It is all owing to his grace, sustaining, pruning, (laughs) and changing me so that I become no longer one that survives, but one that thrives. Jesus said to his disciples, I came that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Folks, God's design for us is that we would flourish under his care. And that as we flourish, a watching world would get to see what God can do in the life of someone who is simply surrendered to the support system that Christ brings by the Spirit. In it, he attaches us vitally to himself so that his life begins to be evidenced in my life. And the result is something miraculous that I can't take credit for. It's what God desires to do. He invites us to come to the vine in this account and to look at the place where the ancient trunk meets vigorous, fast-growing branches. The trunk, the source of vitality and fruit and flourishing. This is where abiding happens. When I acknowledge on a regular basis that Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing, but in you, the sky is the limits. Folks, I want us to see our church flourishing. But here's what I know. We are a multitude of branches. And the flourishing of this church for the glory of God, bearing much fruit in this community, is dependent upon individual commitments to abide in Christ that are then worked out in the context of the body of Christ, where many branches are tying in vitally to Christ together. 
and a beautiful harvest begins to emerge for the glory of God amongst people that know I am nothing apart from him. That without him I can do nothing but with him. What will God do? That's at the heart of this text. 26 years ago, I preached this passage of Scripture. It's kind of weird when you can look back that far, (laughs) given that I came here when I was 30. I remember Pastor John George coming up to me afterwards and saying, how? How? How do I... I got what you said, but how? How How do I abide in Christ? And I think... A real quick summary of 9 through 11 tells us how. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. How do I remain in the sustaining power of Christ? I obey him. You were looking for something more important, weren't you? (laughs) I disappointed you. No, he keeps it simple, folks. You know how a child maintains a beautiful relationship with their parents? Obedience. Honor comes through obedience. So the question that you and I need to ask on a daily basis if we're going to remain in Christ is to simply say, Lord, what do you want from me today? How can I surrender my life to you today? What opportunity, what purpose, what plan do you have for me today? Here's what Jesus said. I remain in my Father's love By obedience. You remain in my love by your obedience. That's why that word in verse 3, the word spoken cleanses you, prunes you, and makes you productive as you listen to and obey and do it. Now, it's interesting in the context, however, that this obedience finds a particular manifestation in the context of relationships with each other. Notice what he says in verse, verse 12. He says, my command is this. So verse 10, if you keep my commands, you remain. You are tied to the source of life and vitality. My command is this, because that's what I want to know. Okay, if I obey his commands, he promises flourishing. What are his commands? They can be summarized in one. We providentially talked about this about four weeks ago. My command is this. Love each other like I loved you you. And that's going to come into clearer perspective, isn't it, for Jesus' disciples? It's why in verse 13 he can say, oh, by the way, greater love has no one than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Folks, the essence of love of others is self-sacrifice, always. And it's the reason Jesus drives this nail over and over and over again. It tends to want to come out It needs to be driven back into our lives. This is my commandment. Love each other. Do it in light of the fact that I love you first. So this love that I am called to express derives from a prior love. Jesus isn't saying, get it together, work it up, and love others. It's really hard, but you can do it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look at my love, my prior love of you. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. That Lamb of God comes into view in John chapter 15, and the verse we're looking at, which I can't remember the number of. He comes into view, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. 
And Jesus invites us into that kind of a loving relationship with those around us. Folks, you want to transform your marriage? You want to transform your workplace relationships? I dare you. I dare you on your way to work to pray. God, show me today how I can love others like Christ did. Because you will get a clear word already spoken to you. And as you begin to love in that way, here's what will happen. You will find you're inadequate to do it, which will lead to saying, Lord, I need to trust in you. I need you to guide me. I need your advice. I need your direction. And all of a sudden, what are you doing? You're, you're vitally attaching because you're actually trying to accomplish something miraculous in your life. Love of rebels doesn't come naturally. Love of enemies does not come naturally. It's miraculous. And it only comes from Christ. That's why he says to us, the prior love that I have for you should motivate your love for others. Do you see how it works? And all of the commandments that relate on this level are bound up in that one commandment. So it takes me back to a very fundamental, beautiful picture of what the Christian life is about and what abiding is about. Abiding is about walking in obedience to the commands of Christ to the degree that I must have his assistance to do it effectively and fruitfully. We opt for the easy commands. Jesus calls us to the fullness of the commands. I described that to you about a month ago. And here's what you will find happens. As you vitalize this relationship, because you're attempting things on this plane that you can't do, and you've got to make the phone call to Tim Matthews say, how do I figure this out? Yeah. Tim's not God. It's a bad illustration. But, but when I get in a spot, what do I do? I say, I can't do this. Oh, yes, I can. I call someone that knows how. And it begins to happen under their direction. Same thing is true in our walk with God. You're vitally relating to God. You begin to attempt on this plane of relationships, vital relationships. Something that you can't do. All of a sudden, you've got to say, God, I, oh, I need your help. God says, wait, let me nip this thought off, this attitude off, and watch what happens. Folks, that's the beauty of this vital relationship with Christ that fills and energizes us. Jesus says, I came that you might have joy and have it abundantly. He doesn't want you to languish in weakness. He wants you to abound in power and joy. That's what he wants. May God help us to go tomorrow, to go through this week, to go through the rest of our lives, attempting things that we can't do so that we have to. Call out to Jesus and say, Lord, I, I want to, but I can't. I don't, I don't have the desire. Change my heart. And I'll just make this other observation. Verse 14. Here's a stunning statement. Comes off of verse 13. There is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And to, to this group of bickering and arguing disciples who can't get it straight, sounds like home sometimes, doesn't it? He says to them, you are my friends. You are my close acquaintances. You know my heart. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Folks, we are not servile to Christ. We're called friends. We're servants who are friends. 
which means we have moved from a obligatory relationship bound by duty to a relationship of joy and happiness. I know the boss. He considers me a friend. And here's what I want you to understand. Jesus isn't saying, hey, yo, we're chummy now. Okay, we're kind of like on the same footing. That is a disgrace to Christ. We are his friends. You won't find scripture saying, he is my friend. But I am a friend of the king of kings. And that astonishes my heart. It causes me to want to draw near and abide. Because apart from him, I can do nothing. So this relationship of abiding is honored with the word friend. Not servile duty, but relationship that brings power into the life of weak, anemic followers. In this, we can say that the Christian life is not individualistic. It is not private. It is a shared life. We live in a world where people end up in broken relationships, follow this, fail to love others and end up being individual, pious particle Christians who make no difference in the body of Christ. We get a little hurt. We don't forgive like Christ says. And we drift away. It's even possible to come here on Sunday morning and be individualistic in my view of walking with Jesus. I cannot find it in scripture. He has called us into a family, into a vine, and all of us are attached in that same relationship, experiencing the same power and the same joy and the same abundance. That's his design. I beg of you this morning, heed the words of Christ. Pray fervently that God will do in and through us what we could never do on our own, a miraculous harvest of selfless love and selfless behavior that glorifies our Father in heaven and blesses every person that comes in to our sphere of influence. That's why I believe this idea of abiding in Christ, which seems theoretical, philosophical, is actually incredibly practical because it is experienced as we keep his command to love one another. Who does he want you to love? Who does he want you to forgive? What does he want you to let go of so that you can be free to tie in intimately to the vine and do things that you never expected to see for the glory of God? Father, this morning, we confess that our hearts are weak. We say the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus, thank you that you have called us friends. Thank you that you have loved us before so that we would love you and others now. God, help us to love. Father, I pray that if there's someone here who has never experienced the prior love of Christ through the cross, never been converted, never been forgiven, never been redeemed, maybe they've hung close to the vine but have not experienced a vital relationship with Jesus, I pray, God, today that you would cause them to realize that there is no greater love than this, that you, Lord Jesus, laid down your life for them. And today, by grace, through faith, you desire to draw them into a relationship with you and call them your friend. Lord, forgive us for our reluctance to abide. Forgive us for our distracted way of living, our preoccupation with busyness and trivia. 
God, help us to tap into what is vital, into what remains, so that we as individuals and then as a church together will be for your glory and for the good of those around us. We pray that these blessings would fall on us through the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name this morning that I pray. Amen.